Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon yet again today. Joined in studio as almost always. Almost always. <laughs> was that you said 60% of the time? It happens every yes, time. Yes. yes. That's right. Good to see you, C.W. Are you having a good day? I am. And um, enjoying the warm weather. And that's uh, a nice segue for our guest today. We were talking a little bit about that before we went on the air today. I'm joined in studio by foot and ankle surgeon, podiatrist Shamir Bika of Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia. He joined us actually for our inaugural show, and here we are almost exactly year a year late. later. What perfect timing. Did you do that on purpose? It really was an accident, I mean, how it, how it worked out, but uh, I, I didn't even think about it. And then you mentioned Nilsa from your office had said something about it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it really was. You were the first on the first show. Good timing. So here we are. And it's, uh, as I was saying, getting warm and Shamir and I were talking about before the air, we went on the air today that uh, folks are getting out, starting to get active, trying to get on the road and do some running, do some working out. Fulfilling and, the New Year's resolutions. And as I have done in the past, overcooking it a little bit. Exactly. And uh, that's where you come in. Yep. So kind of for the folks who didn't get to hear your sh- your initial uh, time on the show just yet uh, talk about your your background and how you got to be a foot and ankle specialist because I know you 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 went through some extensive training to do what you're doing so talk about that a little bit so you know podiatry has grown significantly from what it used to be um you know back in the day sh- podiatry was chiropathy ex- essentially it was palliative care involving primarily calluses you know, nails, um, things like that. And, you know, as the circumvent of decades of advancement in any kind of tech or field would occur, um, podiatry has grown to be a more well-encompassed um, specialty. Uh, you have to go to four years of podiatry school. Um, I did mine in particular in Miami because it was nice and warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a three-year surgical residency up at um, Inova Fairfax Hospital, which is a uh, level one trauma center in uh, Washington, D.C. area. Um, during my last year over there, I was also the chief resident at Georgetown's um, yeah. Diabetic Limb Salvage Center. Right. Um, following that, I f- moved right back to my hometown of Alpharetta, where um, I've been practicing for the past about two years now um, in private practice. Um, I'm lucky to be a partner in a very, very large group of about 20 offices and mm-hmm. 20 physicians um, spread throughout the metro Atlanta area. Um, and, you know, during my residency, my clinical um, sort of interests and subspecialties um, evolved. And I primarily now um, see uh, more of the sports medicine trauma-oriented um, patients. I do do, um, you know, elective surgeries such as bunions and hammer toes and things like that also. Um, but it seems like my practice is catered more towards the sports medicine and trauma area. I mean, I also... Um, because of just the subspecialties that I'm in, we do a lot of reconstructive foot and ankle surgery. Mm-hmm. And being somebody who does some running on occasion, though I've been a little bit sloth of late, um, but I've I've actually experienced a couple of the things that uh, that that you put some focus on in your sports medicine practice: plantar fasciitis um, and Morton's neuroma. Right. Uh, I had I started off with plantar fasciitis because I was a heel striker mm-hmm. for the longest time and gained some weight. Went back to training. Didn't really take a lot of time to do some stretching, stretching like you talked exactly. about, and started having plantar fasciitis so severe that I, I actually began to think I wasn't going to be able to continue running, and and that's what that's what most people complain about yeah. is that you know, especially when January comes around, you get the New Year's resolutions, and you you know a lot of people are I want to lose fifteen pounds, I want to lose twenty pounds, I want to lose twenty five pounds. I'm going to do it all this week, right? <laughs> and the the problem though is that you know as the weather is not as great as it is today where it's you know 79 and sunny um you know most people are dormant and then all of a sudden when they make their resolution they think that they can just go straight to the gym and run five miles and there's no proper you know one advancing your or progressing your activity um most people aren't really wearing the correct tennis shoes either 
Um, there's no stretching involved. And usually the next morning they'll wake up, they'll put their foot down, and they have that excruciating sort of feels like mm. someone's sticking a nail into your heel. Yep. Um, and, you know, they're hobbling to the bathroom. It they're is, hobbling yeah. to the kitchen. Um, and, you know, the what we normally see is we see a lot of what's called Google MD, <laughs> where yeah. a, a lot of patients um, will... One, they'll go online and they'll quickly look up what's going on. Um, they'll put their symptoms in and they'll, okay, well, it says I need to take some ibuprofen. So I'll try ibuprofen. I'll try icing. Um, but with plantar fasciitis, when things are in the acute stage, it's great for a doctor to get their hands on it. And the reason why is because when something's acute, your body still remembers it. And we can address it at that point. And we don't, or in me in particular, I don't like to put band-aids on things. I don't like to just stick a cortisone injection and think, oh, hey, three weeks later, you're going to feel great. And you, you probably will because we're numbing your medicine or numbing your pain, sorry, initially. Right. And then we're also giving you a cortisone that's going to help with inflammation. However, more than likely two months later or even a month later, you're going to be complaining of pain again because we're not treating an underlying problem. An underlying problem in in most cases, if not all cases, is there some sort of tightness occurring. Usually it's tightness of the calf muscle, um, and therefore you have a tight Achilles tendon and you have a tight plantar fascia band. And most people, it seems as they will bypass the stretching part when they're reading about plantar fasciitis online, and they'll treat the symptoms rather than treating the underlying problem. And, you know, I generally tell patients that, you know, plantar fasciitis can last for anywhere from six to 10 months. Um, most research shows that it could last up to six to 10 months. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, when you get your, get yourself into a doctor's office, we can try to expedite that. Um, and we can do it exponentially. You know, most of my patients within the first two weeks are 40 to 60% improved and around six weeks, they're 90% improved. But then there's always that 15 to 20% of patients who will show up generally around three to four months after their six-week course with me. Because I don't like, you know, it's like watching paint dry. You know, plantar fasciitis can take a while for it to completely resolve. Right. But if at six weeks we know we're going in the right direction, we're seeing improvement, then, you know, I'll usually discharge the patient and let them continue what they're supposed to be doing. The key word is continue what they're supposed to do. And most people, you know, 15, 20 percent won't. Well, they feel better. Right. Yeah. As soon as they feel better, they think they're cured. Well, we, we, stretching doesn't re recreate the wheel in any way. Stretching doesn't all of a sudden recreate your foot shape. So these patients will end up coming back around three to four months later with pain again. And as we continue to have plantar fasciitis, you know, the first time it may only take six weeks to resolve. The second time, you're going to start developing scar tissue. Um, the third time, you know, you're going to start developing even more scar tissue. And when we have patients who have plantar fasciitis for months, if not years, before they actually see a doctor, your body's forgot about it. And at this point, now it's one of those things that you can throw all kinds of things at it. It's going to take a lot longer to, to heal. So, you know... What the things that we usually try to address right off the bat, and I have all my patients that are either in sports med that are sports medicine related, um, or if they're complaining of heel pain or any kind of thing, pain in the foot, I make them bring their shoes because for some reason they think that I'm going to come in flip flops because they're helping me out <laughs> by being able to take their shoes on and off quickly. Yeah, yeah. But in reality, what I want to see is what are they wearing on a normal day to day basis? If they're having pain after exercise, well, what are they wearing during exercise? And we've seen a lot of patients with um, these Nike free airs um, or the Newton shoes or these native running shoes, which are nice and light. Um, but the problem is, it's based on the, the theory of native running. Mm, and most and, of those people are not doing that. Right. And native runners run on dirt. Um, native runners were probably lighter than the, the population it is now. So, you know, we have people who are overweight, running on concrete or asphalt or even a treadmill, um, not stretching, and wearing shoes that are not taking the energy that it needs to take. And it just sort of brews up this awesome storm of, well, I'm going to wake up in the morning with either heel pain, I'm going to wake up in the morning with Achilles pain, um, or I'm going to wake up in the morning with forefoot pain or you know, where they end up with a neuroma down the road or they end up with a stress fracture um, or you know, just generalized forefoot pain. So for the person that develops plantar fasciitis, fasciitis rather, um, what, what is the strategy? What do, what do we do to start with? Um, both in the office, right. and then what, what do we need to be thinking about at home? So right off the bat, um, 
shoe gear changes. Um, no barefoot walking whatsoever. That that includes home, and you know I practice in Alpharetta. I practice in an area that's um, a little bit more, uh, as my uh, fiance calls it, posh posh. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit more affluent. Um, you're not gonna get people to wear tennis shoes on a day to day basis, um, and you know that's where you have to be com- creative. And there's flip flops out there. One of them being Bionic, that has a nice firm arch built into it. And you know this is a, a good way for getting my patients to be compliant. They'll wear those indoors. Um, they even have uh, night slippers now that are nice and fuzzy, but still has a built-in arch um, that helps maintain. Because it doesn't make sense to do what you're supposed to be doing outside the house, but then you may be walking just as much, if not more, inside the house when you come back from work. So one of the goals there is with the arch supports, and that is that just kind of resisting some of the stretching motion that well, the heel is going to put on it? Well, so the shoe itself doesn't really have an arch support in it because if it did, the shoe, I mean, one, they wouldn't be able to sell them. Um, they have to be able to sell to a, a wide population. But with the shoe, we want to shoot it. You can't turn into a burrito. If you can fold your shoe into threes, then that's probably not a shoe you should be wearing because the shoe itself needs to absorb energy. You know, when we walk at a certain moment in time, your foot is taking 100% of your body weight as it shifts to the other side, and you may be shifting, you know, 50% of that, but you're taking quite you're a bit. You're amplifying that right. when you start running, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we're not walking on trampolines. We're walking on concrete. So the concrete's not really taking much of your energy. It's putting it right back through the foot, right back towards your, your knees and your hips. So if you're not wearing the correct shoe, well, essentially your foot, and then your ankle, your knees, your hip, and even your lower back is taking the energy that every step you're making. And then on top of that, you know, we'll have patients put in inserts. Now, you know, there's, we don't mean those inserts you get in Walmart or in Target. You know, Dr. Scholl's, um does wonders when it comes to their little machines with the custom orthotics, et cetera. Um, but we want something that's nice and firm. And we, you really can't get those over the counter. Um, we want essentially something that's plastic, that's not going to bend or deform to weight. Because if you have something that's nice and soft, well, it looks like you have an arch when you're putting it on a table, but if you can put your hand right over it and smush it into a pancake, then it's not going to hold up to your own weight. Mm-hmm. And you want, and this is where the arch support's important, is you want to be able to essentially cradle the plantar fascia band. So that band isn't constantly going from a tight to fully stretched position and causing these micro tears to develop, which then leads to the inflammation, which then leads to that that pain you get. So the arch support and then the orthotics that you're talking about help that resist being stretched right it essentially resist the forces right out. it essentially resisted the deforming part of the of the plantar fasciitis the part where if you were to look at a rubber band for example and stretch a rubber band out completely you'll start to see little cracks yes. in the rubber band well your right. plantar fascia does that too your plantar fascia imagine it being a rubber band one if it's in the contracted stage and then you start to constantly stretch it, contract, stretch, contract, stretch, contract, you're going to start developing those little cracks in the plantar fascia band. Now, do we see that on x-ray? No. But if we were to get an MRI, we would start to see an inflammation around there. And some people can even have full-on tears or or partial tears. Um, And, you know, that's when those patients can barely put any weight on their their foot at all. Um, But the whole purpose of this insert is to prevent that motion from occurring. And, you know, we have... You know, a lot of people think, well, I don't want to spend $350 on custom orthotics. And that's not necessary. You know, I would say 99% of my patients that have plantar fasciitis have what we call prefabricated orthotics. And prefabricated orthotics are um, still nice semi-rigid inserts, um, but they're made for mild to moderate deformities. Therefore, they're made for a general population. They're not made custom for your foot because we're not taking a cast of your foot. Um, You get them in the office. Um, You know, we obviously want to make sure that we get x-rays and we do a a physical exam before we start throwing people um, prefabricated orthotics. You know, the reason why you can't get these more rigid ones in the you know at grocery stores and places like that is because we have to worry about the diabetic population. Yeah, you know, diabetic population thinks, well, I have foot pain, I need an insert. Well, their foot pressure, pain, yeah. right? Their foot pain may be neuropathy based, so where it's a nerve issue, and now they don't have the greatest sensation. You put a piece of plastic underneath their foot, <laughs> and then the an next ulcer. thing you do, they yeah. show up an ulcer, and that yeah. leads to a whole you know gamut of amputation 
you know, possibilities and wound care, et cetera. So those are things that are usually kept to the doctor's office. Um, besides, you know, wearing proper shoes and inserts, stretching is the mainstay. Yeah. You've got to so stretch. What, talk about what kind of stretches that you recommend. So, you know, my patients, I, I literally will give them a three-page um, instruction manual on stretching. And they have to do about four different types of stretching exercises. Two of them are up against the wall. But any stretching that essentially um, is targeting the calf muscles because the calf muscle is what's making up your Achilles tendon. And then the fibers from that tendon make the turn around the heel and help contribute to the plantar fascia band. Mm -hmm. So if your Achilles is too tight, then your, your plantar fascia is tight. So by targeting that muscle group, we're helping to stretch out the Achilles and inadvertently we're also helping to stretch out the plantar fascia band. Um, you know, I'll have patients where they'll sit with a towel or if they want to go get the green elastic band you can get at the pharmacy and they will they will essentially stretch their foot and mm -hmm. to 90 degrees right and they will hold it for 30 seconds release and do that for a set of 10 twice a day morning and evening um, that's one of about four exercises they'll do um, total exercising or sorry stretching will take anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes to do if they do it the way they're supposed to um, you'll see a lot of people where they do this whole bouncing activity of they're bouncing when they're stretching but in reality stretching is supposed to hold it in a fixed position and maintain that position for about 30 seconds to get yeah, a so full the muscle stretch. can actually relax right yeah. you know i'll have patients who'll say well I, I do a lot of calf raises in the gym you know i, I thought I, and, well <laughs> we're not trying to build muscle here we're trying to stretch what muscle you have because most runners already have well-developed yeah. calf muscles um, we have you know even patients who have flat feet or in patients who have um, a high arch, um, the pes cavus deformity, they already have underlying um, tightness of their Achilles tendon, or what we call equinus. Um, so equinus essentially is where you have a tight Achilles tendon. If you're ever to go look and see a horse galloping, you'll yeah. see that they're galloping on the front of their hooves. Right. And that's where equinus came from. They have well-developed calf muscles, and our runners have very well-developed calf muscles. And that's why you'll see that they're usually four-foot runners. They run yes. on the ball of their feet. Yeah. So either they come in with ball of foot pain or they'll come in with heel pain because of the plantar fasciitis aspect of it. So stretching is also a mainstay. you know. And then some of the, the things are obviously to treat symptoms. Um, icing twice a day, three times a day, get a bottle of water, put it in the freezer, freeze it, roll your foot over it. Um, I never thought I had to do this in two, in the two years, but I, now I actually tell patients that make sure it's a cylindrical water bottle. I had, <laughs> I actually had one patient try using a Fiji bottle and wasn't really getting much out oh of my it. Goodness. So make sure we have a cylindrical. <laughs> exactly, that, you really can't get that Fiji are. bottle to do the whole, you know, uh, rolling. It'll get cold. It'll exactly. get roll. cold, well. and it'll sit there for them. So. I never thought I'd have to do that, but I tell every patient, make sure it's a cylindrical water bottle. Um, and they'll, they'll, they'll do that about two to three times a day. Um, another thing I actually started putting into my, um, my regiment was they'll now actually only ice morning and afternoon. In the evening, I'll have them do contrast bath therapy, which is essentially getting two buckets of water. One's a cold bucket with cold water and ice. Uh, warm buckets, warm water with two tablespoons of Epsom salt because Epsom salt seems to make everything feel better. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll put their foot in a cold bucket for one minute and go straight into the warm bucket for three to four minutes and alternate back and forth. They do this for a total of 30 minutes, starting with cold, ending with warm. And what it does is it opens and closes blood vessels and it helps the one milk out swelling, Yeah. Um, in which we all know that you're going to swell more at the end of the day because of one, gravity mm -hmm. pulling fluids, mm -hmm. but two, it helps them help push the inflammatory cells that are, that are sitting there back into the deeper veins and towards the heart rather than migrating and, and sort of just hovering in the area of injury. Um, you, that's, you know, when you look at, when you're watching ESPN, for example, you'll see athletes, you're in an ice bath or in a warm bath. And, you know, we focus this to just the foot, but the foot needs assistance in helping to move swelling out. Mm -hmm. Unlike the arm where you can just raise your arm um, right. periodically throughout the day, um, the foot is always going to be gravity dependent. And because of that, you're always going to have some sort of degree of swelling, especially when you have an injury on top of that, that swelling could linger for a lot longer. So by doing a contrast bath, especially at the end of the day, patients have seen um, do be moving in a much a quicker direction. Um, cortisone injections are always available. Um, I actually don't give many cortisone injections. Um, a lot of my partners do. Um, I offer um, 
to patients who, you know, are coming in at seven, eight, nine out of 10 pain where they just can't seem to put their foot down. Um, but in my area um, where I practice, not many people want injections. Um, sometimes they go to their primary care first and they get traumatized. Um, not everyone gives injections um, from the side of the foot like there should be. Some will go straight from the bottom of the foot and that's not pleasant whatsoever and I'm not surprised that they don't want another injection ever again okay. um, so we'll give cortisone injection but you have to also realize that that's just a band-aid and it's limited to three to four in a year's time because you don't want to you know, damage the fat pad um, so you know we offer that I usually will reevaluate two weeks later to see if it's really necessary or not um, I do a lot of oral um, anti-inflammatories but even with that, it's one of those things that you have to worry about stomach upset. Right, yeah. So these patients will be on it for maybe um, two weeks up to six weeks. What I usually do is for the first two weeks of seeing me, take it no matter what, twice a day. Um, and then at two weeks, when we start to see significant improvement, that's great. Now let's start to, to wean off either to once a day or as needed. Um, I also do a lot of compound creams. I'm not sure if you um, have seen many patients with that, but um, you know, compound creams used to be a big thing in the 70s. 80s when compound pharmacies were all over the place, mm -hmm. um, but you know they're they're starting to make a, a resurgence. Yes. Um, and you know the nice thing about compound creams is that you can put multiple drugs. Um, I generally have a five drug combination. It has an anti-inflammatory, has a topical steroid, it has a pain medication, it has an anesthetic in it, and it even has something that helps to get down into the deep tissues. But you don't have to worry about the systemic toxicity as long as you're applying it to just that one area. I've had one runner who wants to apply it to multiple areas <laughs> and you have yeah. to constantly remind them, hey, this is, you still can even overdose on a compound cream. Um, but, but it's, one of those things is you can use it for longer periods of time and not have to worry as much about the systemic toxicity. Mm -hmm. um, in my office, um, we just actually added within the past month or so a laser system too um, because I do so much of sports medicine and trauma. Um, it's a class four deep tissue laser and it's FDA approved. Um, a lot of the sports teams have it. Um, a lot of the research that you see is actually from these sports teams like the, the Detroit Tigers, um, you know, uh, a lot of um, professional soccer teams also. And the way this laser system works is it's essentially causing a reaction in the injured tissue, and it's helping to, one, it, it takes care of pain immediately. A patient that comes in 8, 9, 10 out of 10 pain, um, after the first treatment, they leave usually with 0, 1, or 2 out of 10 pain. Wow. Um, and that has to do with the whole substance P and the whole cascade of pain itself and with the neurotransmitters. But on top of that, it also helps with inflammation. It helps with reducing edema, which then helps the, with pain. Um, and it helps to actually heal damaged tissue at a quicker rate um, by bringing in the nutrients that's necessary. And, you know, the problem with lasers are that lasers can be either FDA approved or it can be where well, it's just a hogwash of, um, you know, some clinical studies showing it's improved and therefore, you know, let's try it out. Um, but this one actually has a lot of research behind it. Um, and the nice thing about this machine actually is that it, it gives me multiple ventures. Um, one, I use it for sports medicine, trauma for pain purposes, for ankle sprains, for example. Like the Detroit Tigers um, clinical study, it was he was a starting pitcher for the Tigers. You know, these guys are being paid to play sports. Mm -hmm. And the more they're out to nurse an ankle sprain or, or nurse some sort of tendonitis, one, the team hurts. Um, person probably hurts a little bit in terms of not sure how their contract is set up right so this expedites them and getting them to back to their sports at a, a much quicker rate um and you know this machine actually i get to use it for fungal nails even a different setting different um hand piece and we can use it for fungal nails and i've actually used the machine itself for surgery even um excising warts out wow. so it's a it's a multiple um modality type machine but you know we've had a, a my most recent one was yesterday. Plantar fasciitis patient I've actually treated and healed. Um, he's a custom and border um, patrol officer at uh, Hartsville Airport. Um, obviously constantly on his feet. Um, had this happen about nine years ago, and then he had a recent bout, which we took care of with inserts and you know the normal conservative care. He healed and was pain-free. But he's one of those 15 to 20%. All of a sudden, no more inserts, um, doesn't stretch, 
um, wasn't wearing his night splint and decides to go play basketball one day with his son <laughs> and was trying to dunk and just could not dunk and that made him even more aggravated and just kept on going on and on and on and then the next morning he ended up with acute plantar fasciitis again but this being around the third or fourth episode he hasn't been as um amenable to the conservative treatments we've tried cortisone injections we've tried topical um, compound creams we did the anti-inflammatories we've done physical therapy and he just wasn't getting better we started him on um, the laser therapy and the laser therapy the way it works is it's um, for acute conditions five to six treatments for chronic conditions around 10 to 12 treatments he did his sixth treatment yesterday Um, it's generally two treatments a week um, but for him we we're trying to be even more aggressive. We we're doing it every other day, three te- three, uh, three treatments a week. Mm-hmm. And as of yesterday, he is actually zero out of ten pain. Um, he's he says he's doing a stretching because I told him that even though now that you're pain free again, we have to maintain that. Um, he's stretching using his night splint, using his um his inserts, and I think today actually yeah he's leaving today to go to Puerto Rico for um, spring break. Uh, for his kids, and he's pain-free. So, I wish that was around when I was dealing yeah. with plantar fasciitis a few years ago. We've been talking with Shamir Biko, <laughs> podiatrist and foot and ankle surgeon with Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia, and clearly we've been covering one of the issues that it faces a lot of people around the community, particularly around this time of the year when it starts warming up and all of us start trying to head out to the trail, to the park, and do some running. And I was going to ask you, you mentioned some great approaches for folks who are dealing with some plantar fasciitis, how to get rid of it, but as it relates to... Advice on running style, because what happened to me, my, my course of, of you know, the disease process for me was got a little overweight, mm-hmm. hadn't run for a while. I was a previous runner, so I did the exact same story you did. I went out, started running, hadn't been as diligent about my stretching as I used to be, started having plantar fasciitis and went through that you know several months long process that you describe mm-hmm. of getting it better. And sometime in there, that's when I first found out about the whole notion of barefoot and minimalist running. Um, barefoot running in particular, and and I was intrigued because it talked about the fact that it eliminates the heel strike, um, or at least greatly minimizes mm-hmm. it, and uh, all but addresses the whole problem that comes uh, with creating the the plantar fascia stretch, you know, that causes that mm-hmm. tear, and and knee and hip pain and things like that. So I was definitely inspired to try it. Right. So I went and got, you know, some Vibram five fingers. <laughs> And uh, I was I was fairly cautious about it, you know. The the the, the re, if you do some reading about the minimalist running style or midfoot striking, mm-hmm. um, they are very clear that you need to be very judicious about how quickly you go out and start doing that style of running, which um, particularly when you're doing the the, the barefoot type mm-hmm. running, not just the minimalist shoes that you described earlier. So I did do that um, and was able to advance my miles. I was able to run without heel pain, but then sure enough, after, I don't remember how long it took me, several months, um, when my mileage started getting up there a little bit, that's when I started having the, the pain in the ball of foot. Now I'm like, holy cow, man, I'm not ever going to be able to continue to running because then it turned into Morton's neuroma. Right. And that might be one that would be worth taking a few minutes to talk about because, um, you know, my question ultimately after we talk about how mm-hmm. to deal with that is, is there some best advice as far as running style, heel strike versus midfoot? It would seem to me mechanically midfoot is better if you can transition to it safely. Right. But from the expert, what do you think? You know, in terms of, of running styles, it's hard to get someone to change their running style. It's, it, unless you go and start doing gait training and, and go to a physical therapist or a, an athletic trainer that can teach you on how to properly run, you know, whatever running style you have, especially for, because we're talking about the novice runners in yeah. general, um, you know, instead of trying to change how you run, getting a shoe that adapts to how you run is probably a better bet. Okay. And, you know, what we usually recommend in terms of running shoes, New Balance are great. Um, Asics. Um, if you actually look at the box on a New Box or on a New Balance or an Asics, you'll see a medical symbol from the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. So you know the reason why we like New Balances and and Asics in particular is that one, you can actually use these shoes for medical reasons. You know, I actually have a prescription pad from New Balance, and I can say this person has plantar fasciitis. This person has this underlying deformity 
find a shoe to accommodate this. Um, you know, for a flat feet, for example, we'll have, you know, New Bounces have roll bars in their shoes to help over, uh, prevent overpronation um, type um, gates. So your shoe can assist. Okay. But you want to make sure that the shoe is not just focusing on one aspect. For example, like the, the barefoot running and things like that. You try to address one thing, i.e. heel pain, and then you, recre- you will create a new problem, yep. the forefoot pain. Um, rather than finding a shoe that's well-balanced that allows for heel strike, midfoot, and then propulsion to occur in its normal gait, that's what we're trying to go for. We're not trying to um, go for the, well, let's avoid this and let's try to bring this in, into a more, um, I guess, more uh, a equal running style. So these, you know, New Balance, the number one complaint I always get is it's not cool enough. It doesn't look great. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Asics are great. Brooks is a good brand yeah. also. Um, Merrill's. You know, there's numerous b- uh, brands out there. Um, what I usually recommend, especially to, to patients, actually to any patient at this point, um, but even to our athletes, go to a proper shoe store. That's what I was going to say um, to, like, the peach trees. The, and, the big peach yeah. running. Um, yeah. You know, I send a lot of patients to New Balance. Uh, you know, if I want them to wear a New Balance sh- shoe yes they could go to Foot Locker they could go to um, you know the the local shoe store inside the mall which you know no knock on them you know they have a great selection the problem though is that I want the person who's sizing them and who's showing them the shoes to be educated in the shoes that they're selling right and you know Foot Locker and these places you know you have teenagers selling and you know teenagers are yes they're educated in shoes too but they're probably trying to sell what's cool Right. What what's you know the newest endorsement, and you know at New Balance in these places, you know one I can trust that they're going to go to the person who's going to show them the correct shoes for what's going on. Um, they will size them correctly because most people know their length, but they don't know their width, and you know they'll wear shoes that aren't properly fitting, mm-hmm. and then you know runners will come in with uh, toenails that are blue. Or, or gone. Or gone, <laughs> right? Or later on to go, I got fungal nails. Uh, why do I have fungal nails? And it's because, you know, you have to make sure you're wearing the correct shoe because when you're jamming up in the front of the shoe, you're going to traumatize. You know, in terms of Morton's aroma, you know, m- some people are not even athletes and they get Morton's aromas. You know, aroma essentially is there's a nerve. There's four plantar nerves um, that are feeding the inner spaces um, in between our toes. Like the knuckles of your, on the ball of your foot. The, the ball of the foot, yeah. right. So these nerves then will um, form branches, two branches, one on each side of the toe. So, you know, if you have the one side of your second toe and the other side of your third toe, that's one plantar nerve. Well, this nerve has to go in between your metatarsal heads. And if these metatarsal heads are already too close together, um, just because that's how you were born. Right. And then you're also putting a lot more pressure on your forefoot. Well, this nerve doesn't have much space to move. And it starts to essentially get jammed in between the metatarsal heads. And the nerve starts to react and become um, bulbous. Uh, The way I describe it to a patient is look at a um, spaghetti noodle. And then look at an onion bulb, and you'll see that the you know the onion bulb has a sort of bulbous appearance, and right. it looks like a little knot. Um, that's what the nerve looks like when you actually go in and surgically cut it out. Um, and you know, does neuromas have to always be treated surgically? No. I mean, my first line of care is actually get some inserts and put some metatarsal pads to help try to space these metatarsals out. Yeah, that's what bit. fixed it for me yeah. was the, 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 it was an insert that had the, the metatarsal pad. Yeah, the metatarsal pad that sits right behind right, that. Exactly, right Feels really it. weird when you first put it on, but and then, then you get used to it and then you start to notice that, yeah. you know, the pain's going away yep. because it's giving space. I, was, I right? was able to train out of it. I was, you know, with reduced mileage and that kind of stuff yep. and rest for a while, but I was actually able to get back mm-hmm. and get on the road and, and train my way out of, that pain right. and now i can i finally surrendered to the fact that just being conservative in mileage is <laughs> the number right. one thing exactly. besides the stretching that you're talking exactly. about is just truly being conservative particularly if you're an old fogey like i am yeah and like you know like, like for us for conservative care you know the metatarsal pad is great changing your shoes making it a little bit wider you know the way i when we even diagnose it and test it i'll actually squeeze the foot from side to side and if, and and then squeeze where they're, you know, complaining of pain. And if that's positive, well, me squeezing from side to side is showing how the shoe, if it's too narrow, 
is compressing on that nerve, and then I put pressure on top of the nerve, and if that causes pain, that's almost a sense, it's, it's pretty definitive that you have a neuroma. We usually still get MRIs because we want to see what size neuroma. Um, you know, some will respond to conservative treatments. Some will need to be treated with either alcohol sclerosing injections um, or surgery. Um, you know, when we do alcohol sclerosing injections, it's not the most um, fun thing. It's, you know, we're injecting a 4% alcohol um, with anesthetic, but still 4% alcohol into an area of the nerve to try to kill the nerve. Um, so if patients aren't having, you know, constant pain on a day-to-day basis, I wouldn't recommend it because when we kill a nerve, now you have numbness. Right. And some people don't want numbness. So, you know, we'll try to find a happy medium. But, you know, the, the biggest thing is trying to catch things early. If you're having problems right off the bat or in the first few weeks, there's something going on there that you need to stop and get have it examined, reevaluated. Whether it's the shoes, you know, whether it's um, the way you're running, um, whether it's not stretching correctly, but stopping initially off is going to help in the long term because you know most patients their number one complaint is, well, we waited. It's been six months to a year since I've had pain. How long will it be for me to get better so I can go run again? <laughs> well, if it's been six months to a year for you to even see a doctor, now there's no magic pill for us to automatically take resolve that much longer. something, right? And when your body starts to get used to it and it forgets about it, we have to sort of try to remind, hey, there's still something going on here. Help us out. Um, so, you know, we could throw medications at it, but that's all still a Band-Aid to the underlying problem. So proper shoe gear, um, stretching. Things like that are going to be the mainstay and essentially a lot of the foot conditions you see in sports medicine. Podiatrist Dr. Shamir Bika of Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia is here visiting with us talking about the variety of sports-related injuries that he sees in his office, and he does a lot of focus clinically on folks dealing with sports-related injuries. And one of the things that you talked about both for resolving these problems as well as potentially preventing them is, is proper fitting and proper style of uh, shoes, whether you're talking athletic gear for your athletic working out and, mm-hmm. and even uh, and as it relates to the shoes you're wearing around for work, I'm sure right. that comes into play as well. Um, we talked about the fact that you can have problems with a nail where the bed gets damaged and then you can actually even potentially lose Either a nail, nail or, or have um, <laughs> toe problems and things like that. So Tell the listener when it comes to on the sports-related side mm-hmm. of things and they're picking out, they're going to go do some running-type activities, how should you fit your shoe so that you can avoid problems with your nails or problems with uh, you know those types of issues? So, so you generally want about half a finger length um, in the front or thumb length in particular. Um, you know, everyone's different. You know, there, there are some patients who significantly swell while they run, so they may go for a larger shoe size. You know, in general, getting it sized correctly just once um, by either someone from Big Peach or from a reputable running store um, is enough. Getting sized correctly, you don't have to buy the shoes from there if you don't want to. That's that's not what we're going for, you know. It's the, getting the, the proper fit and proper a proper Because yeah. if you wear a shoe that's too long, for example, because you don't you want space for swelling. Well, if you wear a shoe that's too long and during every step you're propulsing, which means that your foot's sliding forward and it's going to jam up front, causing nail damage. People will have blisters on the tip of their toes. Or if you have a shoe that's too short, you're going to do the same thing, you know. Not even runners, but just patients who are, you know, normal day-to-day walkers, you know, will come in with trauma to the front of their their toenails or they'll come in with fungal nails. And, you know, we have to look at is the shoe or is this sort of underlying microtrauma adding to the problem? And wearing the proper shoes in terms of the length as well as the width. You know, a lot of people focus on the length, but the width is the same thing. You know, sometimes patients will come in with calluses on the sides of their fifth toe that's that's extremely painful, or they'll come in with their big toe, um, you know, black and blue. And, you know, when you start to see things like that, why is it on the outside of the foot or in particular the first and the fifth, you have to start thinking maybe the width of the shoe is just as as important. 
a contributing factor to the deformity as is the length of the shoe. So making sure that we know the length and the width of the shoe is going to be essential because that is going to allow us to, one, make sure you're properly fitted. Two, make sure that when you do go out and pick shoes, that you're picking shoes that are fitted for you. Um, Not just because they're cool looking. Cool, exactly. (laughs) And then three, you know, we're trying to then on top of that, see if we can't use the shoe to help offload some of the pressures. You know, a lot of patients will come in with this idea that they have to wear custom orthotics. And, you know, yes, custom orthotics are great because they are made specifically for your foot. Um, You know, we can adjust them. We can add metatarsal pads and we can add, you know, cutouts for areas where you're putting abnormal pressure, um, where you're getting callus buildup, for example. Um, We can add, um, you know, Morton's extensions and things like that for, for arthritis to the first MPJ. But not everyone has to have custom orthotics. Um, You know, custom orthotics is something that um, in my office, I generally give to pediatric patients um, because they grow so quickly. Um, With custom orthotics, our plan is that they can get new orthotics for less than an over-the-counter orthotic in a year's time um, as they grow. Um, And then I usually give it for people who have severe deformities. Most of my mild to moderate patients will have regular um, not I want to say over-the-counter inserts. They are over-the-counter from a doctor's office, right. but they're prefabricated so that they're still rigid, but they're not made specifically for their foot. Um, you know, some patients will um, say that, oh, no, I can only go custom, and that's completely fine. Um, but the way I describe it is try the thing that's cheaper first. If it doesn't help, then let's go to the more expensive one. Um, but, you know, there's no guarantees with spending $350 on custom orthotics that it's going to resolve problems either. So, you know, usually being the price conscientious guy I am, we'll try to start off with something that's a little bit more reasonable and then work our way up. Um, but custom orthotics are great. Um, they do help with treating underlying deformities. You know, flat feet, for example, when patients who have flat feet, you know, it's either we due to conservative options of wearing inserts and shoes and things like that, or surgery to surgically reconstruct someone's foot so they don't have a flat foot. But obviously now you're worried about scars and screws and plates and whatever else that may be necessary. You know, wearing inserts isn't that big of a deal. Um, The problem is, though, is that wearing inserts also forces people to change their shoe style because you can't fit Mm -hmm. inserts into just any shoe. You can't just fit inserts into, you know, those ballerina flats that um, have become popular these past few years, which I didn't even know about until a patient told me. I had a 16-year-old girl telling me about ballerina flats and why they're the coolest thing in the world. Um, but you wouldn't be able to fill the insert into those. Um, so it does help forcing patients to wear the correct shoes on top of that. And that's one of the things that I'm getting from our conversation here is that some large percentage of folks who end up developing a problem with their feet mm-hmm in particular, is based heavily on the equipment. It, it is. The, the shoe itself. It is. Um, and it's one of those things, like, you know, I, I attribute, like, I, with my athletes, I explain it to them, like, would you go out and use, for a baseball player, would you go out and use a subpar bat? Um, if, if that's what you're doing is, is making money hitting home runs, wouldn't you want probably the best bat out there, or one that's best for you? And the same thing applies to shoes. Not every shoe is the same. So it's one of those things that you you need to find something that's good for you, that's helping to resolve pain. And, you know, unfortunately, some of these good shoes are expensive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, New Balances are generally in the 120 to 160 range. But, yep. you know, my mom alone kept on complaining that she has an ingrown toenail. was never an ingrown toenail. It was actually, she's a avid walker. She walks in the morning, walks in the evening. So she was just jamming the she front of the toenail. To, yeah, three mm-hmm. to six um, miles a day, um, and she was jamming the big toe. And took her to New Balance, got her some New Balance shoes. Of course, it was a little bit of a fight. Um, I We showed her a shoe that we thought she needed, and... <laughs> She drew a hissy fit and goes that I want fashion and function, not just function. Yeah. Um, so we finally found a happy medium, and I have yet to hear her complain again about this supposed ingrown because it never was an ingrown. It was just the way she was walking and the shoes that she was choosing. Um, so, you know, shoes are definitely important. I think making sure that you progress into any activity, um, whether you're 
a professional athlete or not. You know, professional athletes do this on a day-to-day basis. That's why they're able to jump to 15, 20 miles if they're, if they're you know, professional runners, et cetera. And for us, one, you need to realize what you're doing the running for. If you're running to lose weight, then running at a certain distance consistently is better than running 15 miles but only once a week because you're in pain the other days of the week. That's right. Um, so it's one of those things that, hey, maybe cut it down a little bit to three, four miles, but at least you're not in pain the next morning. That may be more reasonable than trying to go, okay, I'm going to go run 15 miles today, and then I'm going to take three weeks out now because I'm in, yeah, in pain. Yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I've gone out and done an overuse injury mm-hmm. for whatever, whether it's in the gym doing some weights, thinking I was using lightweights, but too many repetitions, boom, I can't move. Or going out and advancing my mileage too quickly, and and that's the I think that that's probably the one of the greatest challenges when you've been off for a little while, particularly if you're somebody who like me, I mean, at least up through college years was you know athletically right. active and and doing organized sports, so somewhat know what I'm doing. But that's the 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 challenge I think is to do it conservatively enough, and just like you're talking about just now, for the person in particular who's like us kind of your average joes that want to go out and maybe be a little more healthy try to lose some weight and those types of things to remember that just starting and and being in motion is is definite progress right. and, and and it's not necessarily a bad thing that you don't come back feeling gassed out and and feeling yeah. like you really just uh, put in a grueling workout exactly exactly and the thing is, is that you know when, when I tell patients that they have to start relative rest you know because they come in with eight nine ten on ten pain you tell them oh you gotta rest <laughs> What does that mean? I'm like, well, normal day-to-day activities, no running, no, you know, extensive walking. And you you would think that you're giving them a death sentence. That It's very that, discouraging, that, yeah. You know, how am I supposed to lose weight then? And, you know, there's other things out there. Um, swimming. Swimming is one of them. Pool running. Pool running. Um, you know, upper body weight training. Um, you know, me, myself, I was 208 pounds um, my last year of residency because – one, you don't get many times to eat, and when you do get to eat, you're eating cheeseburgers and Doritos and everything else that you could find. And, you know, it was more of, well, the walking part I was already doing at the hospital, but I needed to figure out a way of, of you know, being more well-balanced. Cutting calories is, is a big step. But one of my um, co-residents told me, hey, do some upper body weight training, and you'll lose, you'll burn just as many calories doing that with repetitions and lightweight than you were doing cardio. So, you know, we we work with patients as best as we can. We'll try to tell them different ways of doing things. Um, we, we don't want patients to be not active because if they're not active because they're trying to heal something, they end up with some other problem, um, whether it's high blood pressure or whatever it may show up. So we want them to be active, but we want them to be active in a sense of letting one thing heal so that we can continue in the forward motion rather than that one thing he'll create a new problem and then you know we're constantly in the doctor's office um so you know we get them to start stretching let them do upper body training things like that get their shoes on board getting the right shoes inserts um these patients um will generally take anywhere from two to six weeks off minimum two weeks for me um and then at two weeks when we reevaluate we can start to slowly and the keywords slowly um, progress yeah. to to back to baseline, um, and we warn patients. You know, I don't want you going and walking, you know, or running three miles right off the bat. If you ended with three miles, um, then you know before you got injured. Well, now you're gonna you're down to half a mile, and start half a mile few few days later or a week later, mile and so on. If you're not in pain, that's fine. Stop because the next day try to add another quarter mile etc um you know i've had some patients will put on the compound cream um, before they go run and (laughs) because they're not in pain they overdo it you know and those kind of things i didn't think of until you start telling patients yeah you start hearing patients i remember hearing that you shouldn't take things like ibuprofen for example Mm -hmm. or or your your compound cream for example that contains some anti-inflammatories before you go and do your training for that very reason because right. it could mask you're masking, the pain. Exactly. You're masking and the next thing you know it, when, when it does start to hurt, off, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be in some serious pain. So it's one of those things that I think what we try to do is we try to teach proper training, you know, and our athletes, and especially the ones who are in high school sports or, and, and 
in particular college sports and professional sports, they have athletic trainers that, that are making sure that they're stretching correctly. And, you know, they have athletic trainers that are giving them the guidance of, of correct shoe gear and correct inserts and things like that and moving them towards the doctor's office at a quicker rate than, um, you know, the normal weekend warrior um, who, you know, does this more for a novice thing to lose weight or to just be healthy or to pass time. And those are the patients that we try to tackle um, in terms of getting them to the office quicker because some of these things can, are quick fixes, but when they've been lingering for six months, a year, I think I've had one person for 10 years before they actually decided to see a doctor, <laughs> um, you know, your body is not going to respond to treatment as fast as someone who has only had it going on for two weeks. Right. So those are the patients that we try to tackle, and that's why we try to educate, you know, doing numerous speeches and, you know, radio shows, for example, and, and things like that to try to get these patients to come in. Um, and, you know, look, at the end of the day, everyone has private insurance plans or they have Medicare or Medicaid or whatever it may be. And we know that, you know, finances are, t are tough. I particularly do not want to see a plantar fasciitis patient month in, month out, for six to 10 months while this thing heals. But what I want to see is the ability to be able to treat a patient, get them in at two weeks to see that we're going in the right direction, start backing off on the meds at six weeks from the day of the first visit, making sure that now with the backed off meds, we're still going in the right direction. And at that point, I discharge. Because, you know, like I said, we can sit here and collect copays left and right, but at the end of the day, the patient's, as long as they're going in the right direction, they have all the tools at their disposal. The, the key is trying to get them those tools, and we can't do that unless they actually come and see us. And obviously another key would be to actually do the things, because there's homework to be done oh, when, yeah. when you're oh, rehabbing yeah. an injury. And, and I, I give it up to my wife, Julie. She, she's dealt with some of the same issues I have. She dealt with a neuroma just like I did. Mm -hmm. Hers ended up having to have surgery. But to her credit, when it as it relates to her sports-related injuries, when she's dealt with them, and she's fantastic about icing yep. and doing stretching and different things like that that they recommend. And I can tell you that that's, you know, even in our practice, which is dealing with patients dealing with wounds, for right. example, there's things that you have to do. And you talk about it, I'm sure you see it in your practice when you say you stay off of it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, my mother-in-law had uh, bunion surgery by your, your, your partner up mm -hmm. in Woodstock. And... Uh, and she came home, foot's all numb, feeling fantastic, and, and walking around oh, in the exactly. boot. Oh, my oh, gosh. Yeah. So yeah, when and, and, and I, I'd a, I'd do a, your homework. Exactly. I mean, I had an 11-year-old girl <laughs> who broke um, her fifth metatarsal um, in gymnastics. I think it was on, a, on the balance beam. I put her in a cast. I already had a suspicion that, that she wasn't going to be the most compliant little girl. And her sister, because I treat six family members um, in, in that one family was telling me how she was doing ha um, headstands um, with her cast on up against the wall. And, and <laughs> go figure, a week later, I get a phone call from the mom saying the cast is breaking. I'm like, that right there is telling me that you're not the most compliant person. So, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes you have to give a little sacrifice and dial it back for, um, to one, get better quicker and then to be able to maintain it because People think that, well, I'll just dial it back a little bit. But if you want to get the baseline quicker, maybe dial it back all the way. Get the baseline quicker rather than hovering around that baseline but never really reaching your full, you know, pain relief because you never really gave yourself the time. Well, I can certainly attest to the fact that as one of those people, oh, I've got this, I'm good oh, to yeah. go. Being a relatively to fair non-compliant patient, starting back too soon, starting advancing too quickly – just listen to what he says. Yeah, <laughs> Do and, what he says. And, and, and I think the biggest <laughs> thing is that, you know, and, and most patients will come in with a, a, a grocery bag or a, you know, a Walmart bag with just all kinds of gadgets. Um, there's so many things out there. I mean, you go to the, you, you just go on the airplane and go to the Sky, the Sky Mall magazine, which I think is not even in existence anymore, but, um, and you would go to their foot section. You'll see all these little plantar fascia um, socks and, um, plantar flashes splints and all these little things and you know at the end of the day they'll spend two three four hundred dollars trying to save seeing a doctor but in reality a lot of these things are accommodative meaning they're not really maintaining shape and so 
if you try to compare a sock to an insert, a sock isn't going to maintain the shape and it's going to collapse and you're going to end up with the same symptoms as you always will. Or you can get an insert that probably will cost the same as that sock, but it's firmer. So it's one of those things that, you know, we, we, we try to tell patients, you know, come to a doctor's office a little quicker. We'll guide you in the right direction. Um, and then, you know, use that money towards things that research shows helps rather than these quick fixes that we see online um, through numerous magazines. Um, and, you know, there's no research behind it. And the, the whole basis of everything that we try to do is evidence-based. Um, you know, yes, things are expensive, but at least let's have some research behind it that shows it's useful. Well, it sounds like if you're applying your, your, your finances in the right places where a, a given item like shoes, for example, mm -hmm. might be $100, $120, and that seems like a lot. I'd love to get my shoes dirt cheap. Exactly. Um, it, when it comes to avoiding injuries, seriously – it, it, in the long that. term, it might be a, a better bet. And, you know, not everyone has the same finances, and that's that's understandable. And that's where it's we, – we're all about problem shooting. We're all about trying to figure out how we can troubleshoot a, an issue, come up with creative ways of, of tackling something um, rather than just – over medicating people or slapping on, you know, band-aids of injections, we'll try to find a creative way because as much as I like to see patients come back, um, you know, I'd rather them come back with a new complaint than the same complaint over and over and over again. And those are the ones that, you know, as long as we can get them going in the right direction, they'll come back again. That's completely fine. But if they come back with a new complaint, then we know at least that they were happy with their previous treatment. And talking of what, going back to our conversation a moment ago, when we talked about buying a good pair of shoes, for example, I was turned on to, I wanted to just make sure I had the <laughs> website right. Um, but uh, runnersworld.com is a, is a website that sells brand name, you, a yep. very wide spectrum. Uh, you name the brand, they probably got them. It's close to kind of like an overstock.com for running right. shoes. I had spoken with a gentleman on the Silver Comma Trail one day, and he had picked up a pair of Newtons, which run between $150 and $175 mm -hmm. or more, and he paid less than $100 for his pair. And some of them will be like last year's model right. or something like that, but you can get a very, very high-end, high-tech shoe Right. Particularly one that may be re recommended by somebody that's a specialist that you can get for much less in terms of the outlay. Yeah, and, and, and that we send people to websites quite a bit. Um, what we do tell them, though, even when they do that, is that go at least get sized get fitted, correctly yes. first. Make sure you get it um, because fitted these, correctly. These, these kind of these you know higher end shoes, these um, shoes for for various sports, have a certain feel to it. They have a certain sizing to it. Um, so, yes, you may be a seven and a half or an eight in a dress shoe. It may not be the same for your athletic shoe. So, you know, we still have patients go get size correctly. That's right. Yeah. Um, Don't omit that step. Right. Because you, you want to make sure that you're not just basing on, oh, my, my dress shoes are nine. So, my athletic shoes are going to be a nine, too. Well, you're not really running with your, your dress shoes all that much. So, we want to make sure you're getting size correctly. But then at that point, hey, bargain shop. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize this until New Balance told me this, but, you know, there is actually a difference in the New Balance shoes you get at a New Balance store versus retail. I guess they have a retail model, and they have a um, model that's for their own New Balance stores. Never knew that. Well, I didn't know that um, But I guess one of my patients um, was went and got something in the retail side because it was cheaper and then was, didn't really get the, the benefits she wanted, took it to the New Balance store, and then wore theirs. Um, I believe it was the same series number. Just there was something mm. different about it. Interesting. So, you know, sometimes um, it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in reality, get size correctly, find the right shoe, go online, look for it. Um, but I would rather you be in a better um, fitting, um, well-made shoe than finding something that's well, it's a $300 shoe because it's cool because there's a cool endorsement behind it or a celebrity mm -hmm. behind it, but it's not really for you. And I tell patients, you know, you, when you guys have, you know, they'll come in with these fancy $300 tennis shoes or whatever or basketball shoes. Well, the person that's probably endorsing it has custom-made shoes of that particular brand. Well, Shamir, it's clear that uh, if somebody does have some challenges with a foot-related problem, ankle-related problem, uh, that you're a great guy to get to see. Tell people where they can get in touch with you. So we have a website, um, ankleandfootcenters.com. Um, our group has 20 offices 
supplying the whole um, metro Atlanta area from the south all the way up to the north. Um, and all of all of the doctors in our group are all surgically trained. Um, they do both conservative and surgical management of the foot and ankle. Um, we don't all treat just sports medicine trauma, nor do I. Um, we treat anything from the skin all the way down to the bone um, of the foot and ankle. Um, my particular office is out in Alpharetta um, off of Windward Parkway. Um, you can always call us directly or you can go online and put in an appointment request and we'll, someone from our staff will call to um, assist you in, with making an appointment. And I know that you're on Twitter as well. And if you haven't linked up with the uh, Top Docs radio show on Twitter, you can find us at Top Docs on BRX. We're linked in with the Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia, and you can find them there in our friends and followers list. And uh, they put out some great information on Twitter and Facebook periodically, which we get and, and feed on our uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds as well want to say thanks to Shamir Thank Bika you. from uh, Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia for taking some time to talk about how that you can treat and, and indeed prevent some of the sports-related injuries that many of us are at <laughs> risk for in this warming period of the year. Um, so make sure that you check out some of their information they have online. And if you have some trouble, certainly give Shamir a call at his office up there in Alpharetta. Thanks for taking some Thank time out of your office to come out today to the studio. And uh, to Krista, thanks for... Thanks for letting me push your buttons. Being CW. here again today. And uh, make, make sure you set your calendar to uh, hook up with us same time, same place next week. 